And what we're doing in this, uh, in this presentation is we're going to do a uh, walk back into time. We're going to have a character that's going to come who lived during that time of Christ and tell us from his perspective some of what happened during that Good Friday, Saturday, and Sunday and beyond. And so we trust that that will be a blessing and be an encouragement, informative. But most of all, our hope and our prayer is that as we share this message with you, that each and every one of you, all of you, know for sure by the time the service is over that you are on your way to heaven. Because the Bible says these things that are written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. And so we want to explain, explain very clearly to you, make it very simple, that because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can be sure you're on your way to heaven. So we'll tell you how that is, works out. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul writes, Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that... He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, Paul. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Shalom. May the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be upon you and the grace of our God, Father in heaven, upon each and every one of you and upon your families at this special time of the year. It is so good to see you. I can hardly believe that it's been two years since I was back here visiting with you to help celebrate the anniversary of our Lord's resurrection. I'm so glad that your pastor asked me to come back a second time. Oftentimes I get invited the first time, but very seldom a second and a third time. And I don't understand why. It's not that I preach real long. Well, not as long as your pastor and some of his staff preach. For those of you who don't know me, and you weren't here the last time I was visiting, my name is Simon Peter, Simon of Bethsaida, Simon, the brother of Andrew, Simon, who was a fisherman by trade, a servant of Jesus Christ by choice. As I stand here looking at you, I can't help but admit I'm a little bit nervous. I find your crowd here very austere and a little bit intimidating. I look and I see the clothing that you're wearing, the books that many of you carried in with you, the chariots that you have parked out in the parking lot. And it becomes obvious to me that you are a very, very well-educated group of people. Most of you are of that ruling class, I'm sure, because your attire and your, uh, your wealth that you show indicates that you must be rulers, nobles, governors, princes, princesses. You, you are not like the normal crowd that I preach to, so that's why I'm a little bit nervous. Speaking of chariots, there is a personal question I'd like to ask you. I look at them and they're so big and they're so bright. How many horses does it take to pull one of them? I mean, I, I went out back looking to count the number of horses in the barn to get an idea, but I couldn't find the barn, couldn't find the horses, and I was just wondering, yes? Thank you. My wife. She comes along with me because she knows that oftentimes I go down donkey trails and get kind of distracted. And then she gives me a cue to get on, get on course again. So where were we? Ah, that's right. You folk, you remind me 
of some of the people to whom I preached my very first sermon to years ago in Jerusalem. It was shortly after the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. It was near the Feast of Pentecost. And what was happening is a lot of different people were coming from all over the region, all over the Judea outside of Jerusalem, from Galilee. And there was a lot of more wealthy people who could afford traveling from distant lands that came there to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Pentecost. People that came from places like Cappadocia, Cyrene, Egypt, Libya, Mesopotamia, Phrygia, Parthia. And as all these people were gathering for this special feast, the streets were getting crowded. There was lots of hubbub going on. My friends and I, we had been directed by the Lord when he ascended to wait in the city of Jerusalem in the upper room until the promise of the Holy Spirit would come upon us. And on Pentecost, the Spirit came. When the Spirit came down upon us, we were filled with great boldness. We went out into the streets and we began to tell everybody we ran into about the good deeds of Jesus Christ, the grace of our Lord. But not only did the Spirit give us boldness, but the Spirit gave us supernatural abilities so that all of a sudden we could speak in languages that we had never studied before. Some of my friends started speaking in the Egyptian tongue, some in the Libyan tongue, some in the tongue of the Cyrenes, talking, telling about the greatness of Jesus Christ. And that those people who were gathered together, that curious crowd, it was then that the Spirit moved me to stand up and to give my very first sermon to all that curious crowd that gathered. I remember I started something like this. Ye men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved unto God by signs and wonders and great miracles which God did by him. And I went on to talk about later in the sermon about how Jesus went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed, and reminding them of some of the great deeds that Jesus had done. Now, many of the people gathered there, they knew about it. They had seen it. Some of them no doubt heard about it. Some of them may have benefited from some of those great deeds or their family members may have been beneficiaries of it. And I began to talk about some of the great things that all these people, if they didn't know, they were surely going to find out as I spoke about the great things that Jesus did like take a small boy's lunch, a lunch that had just a few fish in it and a few pieces of bread. And Jesus, with a word, he multiplied those fish and bread so that thousands upon thousands upon thousands ate until their heart and their bellies were full and there was 13 baskets left over. I told them about the great power of Jesus Christ, how Jesus would speak with a word and those who were suffering from that deadly, dangerous disease of leprosy, all of a sudden, their flesh would be restored to be like that of a newborn babe. I talked about some of those miracles that Jesus did, like how he would come up to people who were blind, who had never seen in their life, and Jesus would speak or touch them, and all of a sudden they could see. They could see so well like what you call 2020 vision. Jesus would perform miracles where bodies were all of a sudden mended like those who who had never, ever heard before. Some of those individuals had never spoken. And they never uttered a word in their life, had never heard how words were pronounced. And when Jesus would touch them or heal them, they not only could hear, but they could speak with clarity without any therapy or any practice. He did that to people who were lame, who were unable to walk since their very birth. And when he would speak or touch them and heal them, they would stand right up and they would walk without staggering or stumbling. Jesus had such power, such compassion for people. But some of the greatest deeds that he did was when he would come up to a body that had died and he would restore life to that body. It was no doubt a miracle. And it happened several times just down the road here in the town of Nain. There was a young man who died suddenly. 
He was survived by just his mother. And when he died, the family, the friends, the neighbors, they gathered. And they had their funeral parade where they were carrying his body on a litter and they were headed out of the town to bury his corpse in one of the caves on the outside of town. And as they were marching and grieving and weeping and wailing, Jesus came along. Jesus stopped the parade. He walked up to where that young body, that young man's body lay being carried on that litter, and Jesus spoke a word. And he, re- he raised that young man back to life and restored him to his mother who was grieving. But when he came back to life, her joy was beyond measure. He did that for another family. Their daughter died suddenly of a fever. Jesus came along and restored Jairus' daughter back to he and his wife. I remember the time that Jesus even gave life to a body that had been dead for four days. We were ministering a distance away. And Jesus got a message that his dear friend Lazarus was very sick and was dying. He mentioned that he was sleeping, and we thought that he meant that Lazarus was resting, but Jesus made it clear Lazarus was dead. We still delayed. By the time that we arrived at Bethany, Several days had gone by, and we were met by Martha and Mary, the sisters of Lazarus. They were inconsolable with grief. Jesus talked with them, and then we walked towards the graveside. And as we were walking, others joined us, people from the town. And I could hear them expressing their thoughts out loud, clicking their tongues in disgust, criticizing and questioning Jesus. If he really cared, why hadn't he come? If he, if he had the power, he could have healed him. He let this man die. If he doesn't care, he doesn't have that much ability and power to restore him now. But they were wrong. When we got to the graveside, Jesus stood there and all of a sudden he, he wept sorely. He composed himself. And then he spoke out. Remove the stone. Martha protested. She was right when she thought to herself that Lazarus has been in that tomb for four days. And she said, Lord, if they roll the stone away, his body, it stinks by now. There will be a putrid stench. But the Lord was persistent. He turned to Martha, or to Mary, and said, Believe, and you shall see the glory of God. Remove the stone. I and a couple others moved up to the graveside. We pushed the stone away, and as soon as it started to roll, we ran away so we would get away from that smell of death. Then everyone turned to see what Jesus would do next. There was a hush over the crowd. Jesus was praying to his Father in heaven. And when he had finished praying, he spoke with a loud, clear voice. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, arise. We watched. We waited. We wondered. And then in the darkness of the tomb we saw some movement. And out from the depths of that darkness came Lazarus alive, walking into the brilliant sunlight of the day. Jesus had raised a man from the dead who had been dead for days. Whatever Jesus ordered, it was done. It came to pass. Diseases disappeared. Winds and waves hushed at his command. Demons bowed down and did whatever he said. Fish flooded into nets. Foods were multiplied. Bodies were all of a sudden restored. This Jesus had such power and compassion. And best of all, he told us, assured us time and time again that he had the power and the desire to remove 
the greatest curse that rests upon all of us, the curse of death, because we are sinners, that he would remove it with a simple word of forgiveness. This Jesus, amazing. What a man. What power. What love. What a God that we remember this day. Rest assured that in that first message we reminded people of all the good things that Jesus had done, of his power and passion. But I also wanted to make it clear to each one of them that before Jesus came into this world and entered into the human race, he and the Father had agreed that once he came into the world there would be a time when he would be turned over to wicked men who would then have him condemned and slain. What a tragedy. What an irony that one so good 
one so kind would be treated so badly by those he came to help. What love that he would allow them to do such evil to him. I remember well when they put their wicked plan into operation. The night that they were gathering, we had gathered as well, and we had had the Passover supper in Jerusalem. When we had finished the meal, we started to head out of the city of Jerusalem towards a place where we could rest without interruption. It was a place we often visited after busy days in the city when there was crowds there. So we were headed for what's called the Garden of Gethsemane. There we would have respite and have an uninterrupted night's sleep. And as we walked and we went as a group, we arrived and I could tell that Jesus was bothered. Jesus was burdened about something. He turned to James, John, and me, and he asked if we would go with him apart from the others deeper into the garden. We agreed. And when we arrived at a more secluded spot, the Lord turned to us, and the Lord began to plead with us and implore us that we would pray for him and that we would pray with him. Then he went a little bit away from us. We could still see him. We could still hear him. And he fell down. I had never seen the Lord so upset before. He began to weep. He began to sob. He began to plead, Oh God, oh God, remove this cup of wrath that I'm about to take upon me. I don't remember much else of what he prayed. I fell asleep. I wasn't the only one. James and John, they fell asleep too. There I go again, trying to excuse what I have done and comparing myself with others. And in all honesty, I should just say to you, shamefully, I must admit, I fell asleep. After about an hour, an hour the Lord shook me as well as the others and asked if we would pray with him and pray for him, please. He went off and began to pray alone again. I tried praying, but it wasn't long before I fell asleep again. You see, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is often weak. After the third time that that happened, the Lord said, the time is at hand. It's enough. And we began to head towards the gate of the garden. And it was then that I heard the stomping feet of the Roman soldiers coming as a large group to come and arrest Jesus, to take him away. Take away the Lord? I offered some resistance. It was very foolish and very feeble. And within minutes, I did exactly what the other ten did. I ran for my life. They took Jesus to the home of the former great high priest there in Jerusalem. And they began a series of trials through the night, if you want to call them trials. They were a sham. The verdict had been determined weeks before by these wicked men who had decided that they would have Jesus found guilty and condemned under some pretense of law. But they went through the process of this travesty of judicial justice. They had hired, procured some liars, some who would accuse Jesus falsely. They slapped Jesus. They spat upon him. And they violated many of their own rules of how, uh, how they were to conduct court. And at the end, they found him guilty. And with that guilty verdict in hand, immediately as dawn came, they went to the home of the Roman governor. His name was Pilate. They woke him. They insisted that he would have, give permission to have Jesus executed that day since there was others who were going to be executed. And they didn't have the power to do it. They needed Pilate's approval. Pilate immediately saw through their wicked plans and their envy and hatred of Jesus 
and said no. They insisted that Pilate give permission for Jesus to be killed. Pilate interviewed Jesus, came back and said, he's innocent. He's not guilty of any crime. They insisted that Pilate have him crucified. Pilate tried to do some legal maneuverings and have Jesus released. The wicked leaders demanded that Pilate have him executed. And if not, they would report him to Caesar and he would lose his job. Pilate, he gave his consent. And he allowed Jesus to be executed so he could keep his job. They then turned Jesus over to the Roman soldiers who were experts at torturing somebody. Several of them whipped Jesus to the very edge of his life. Then they marched him out of the city, having drug, dragging his own cross to the place of execution. Once there, they nailed him to the cross. They allowed it to thump into the ground so that he was slightly elevated above their heads and the heads of the entire crowd so all could see what would happen to Jesus for the next six tortuous hours. Jesus hanging there, suffering, in pain, gasping for every breath, bleeding, naked, mocked, ridiculed, innocent of any offense against any person, any government, innocent of any crime against God. The sinless Son of God hung there, suffering for hours, not for any crime that He had done against mankind, but for the crimes that all of mankind have done against God. Jesus was suffering for my sin and your sin. Suffering the penalty. Suffering the very essence of hell itself. When he was separated the, from the Father the way we should be separated from the Father because of sin. Jesus hung there and experienced for the first time separation from the Father, crying out, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? It was a horrible thing to watch, even from afar. But what struck me even more was Jesus had the ability, he had the authority at any moment to call down 10,000 angels to release him from this punishment, to rescue him. But he didn't. He endured. He suffered. He died for you, for me. I and my friends didn't know what to do. Our master, our mentor, our leader, our best friend was dead. The one we had followed for the last couple of years, we had all of our hopes pinned on him. He was gone. We didn't know what to do. We were confused. And then one of our group remembered that the master had said the night before, the servant is not greater than the master. Whatever they do to the master, they will also do to the servant. Not only were we confused, now we were terrified. Surely that means that we're going to be arrested. They're going to do to us what they did to Jesus. So we ran together. And we hid in the upper room. We barred the door and we stayed there all day Friday, all day Saturday. Some of us just wept over and over and over again over the loss of Jesus. Some of us tried to sleep this nightmare away. All of us, whenever there was a noise outside the door, we would jump 
fearful that at any moment the Roman soldiers would burst through the door and arrest us and take us away and we would end up with the same treatment as Jesus. For me, I remember well. All that Friday evening, that Saturday, I didn't sleep. I was trying to erase the nightmare of these last few hours from my mind. I was lying on my pallet, waking up at the early dawn and thinking to myself, I'm never getting out of bed again. Life isn't worth it. It was then that we heard footsteps coming up the stairs outside the door. We froze. We dare not make a sound. There was a knock at the door. There was voices. Let us in. Listen. We recognized that at least one of them was one of the ladies who was a follower of Jesus and who had gone to the tomb to anoint the body. So we opened the door. The ladies rushed in and they began to speak and talk all at the same time and they were just going so fast we couldn't understand what they were saying. Calm down. Please calm down. One of you at a time. Please. One of you at a time. They took the body of Jesus. The tomb is empty. The, the gravestone is rolled away. Jesus' body. Jesus is gone. John and I looked, caught our eyes and looked at each other and immediately we ran out the door, down the steps, down the street and out towards the gravesite. When we got there, we found it like the lady said. The stone was rolled away. When we peered inside, Jesus' body was gone. All of his grave clothes were neatly stacked one upon another. We had no idea what this meant. We had no idea what they had done with Jesus' body. But within a few hours, we found out Within a short time when we were back in the room, Jesus entered into the room. Jesus was alive. We touched him. We spoke to him. We hugged him. Jesus was alive. This man, this one who had put life back into dead bodies like that boy, that girl, and Lazarus, he had taken up his own life again and restored it to his body. God, as I told that first crowd, God had raised him from the dead, having loosed him from the pangs of death, for it is not possible for death to hold him down. You see what I told that first crowd, I tell you now, nothing ever can, nothing ever will overcome the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no government there is no wicked man. There is no work of the devil. Death itself cannot hold Jesus down. Nothing ever can. Nothing ever will overcome the Lord Jesus Christ.
Jesus was alive. He was out of that tomb and he was alive. For the next 40 days, we walked with him. We talked with him. We held him. We ate with him. We learned from him. We talked about the future. And then at the end of those 40 days, Jesus rose up from the ground and rose into the heavens where he sat down at the right hand of the Father and reigns today. But before he, res he ascended to heaven, he told us that we were to go and tell everyone about this great Jesus and about his forgiveness of sin that he offers. It was then that we learned what he meant when he said, whatever they do to the master, they will do to the servant. As we went and shared the good news of Jesus, we were arrested. We were lied about. The leaders tried to tell others that we were making up stories. There was times we were beaten. We were uh, threatened with death. But every time we were reassured once again, like the song just said, nothing ever will, nothing ever can overcome the work of God. I remember it was, it was shortly after he ascended. We were in the streets of Jerusalem. We were preaching and we were sharing this good news. And those wicked leaders, they wanted to stop us. So they sent soldiers to arrest us. They took us back to their prison. They beat us. And then they locked us away in the prison thinking that they were done with us. But that very night, God sent an angel from heaven who came and opened the door of our prison so that the very next morning when dawn arose, there we were back in the marketplace talking about Jesus Christ while those wicked rulers, they were in bed thinking we were still in jail. It not only happened that time, it happened to me on another occasion as well. Years later, I was arrested. They told me I would die at dawn. So I fell asleep trusting the Lord. And it was right before dawn that all of a sudden I had a strange dream. An angel came and released my shackles, opened up the jail, the door to my jail cell, and led me down the hall and then opened up the prison door and ushered me out. I took this deep breath of fresh air and I realized it was no dream. It was real. I was outside the jail. That God had released me so that I would have years more to go and preach the good news of Jesus Christ to many other people. You see, nothing ever can. Nothing ever will overcome the work of God. Jesus is on a throne in heaven. He says that he'll be with you as you tell this story to others. So I encourage you, those of you who have already put your faith and trust in Jesus, tell others. Let them know that Jesus is alive, that Jesus will forgive them. And when they say, men, brothers, what shall we do? Respond the way I did in that first message. Tell them they need to repent, believe on the name of Jesus, and be baptized because of the forgiveness of sins, and they shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Tell them how Jesus is willing to forgive any and all sins and sinners who come to him in belief and repentance. I know it's true. I heard Jesus say that many a time. I saw him act that way. There was a woman who was caught in the very act of sexual adultery. And when she was brought before Jesus and hypocrites were condemning her, Jesus, he wasn't a hypocrite. She found forgiveness when she repented. And he said to her, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. I remember Jesus telling a story to illustrate this. He told a story about a young man who grew up in a home and he didn't like all the rules and regulations and so he wanted to leave the home and when he got on his own he started spending all of his money on wine, woman and song and drunken debauchery and when all of a sudden the money ran out and so did the friends he came to an end of himself. And he had nothing. He wondered if his father would accept him again. 
And Jesus went on in the story and said, when that young boy came towards home and was starting to come down the long driveway, dad saw him in the house and dad ran out of the house and greeted him with a huge hug, brought him back into the house and restored him to the place of prominence as a son. All Jesus was picturing was that he and the father would treat anyone and everyone who came with a repentant, believing heart the same way. He would forgive any and all sins. That man that was, that was crucified with Jesus, there was two of them. One of them was, a, both of them were criminals, crucified for what they had done wrong. They had broken the law. But one of them had expressed repentance while they were hanging on the cross and believing that Jesus could forgive him. And while Jesus was in all this pain and suffering, he cared so much for that man that he told that man, today you will be with me in paradise. I know it's true. For I am one who has experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for the greatest crime, spiritual crime, that a believer could possibly commit. I denied Jesus. I denied Jesus. It happened that night I was telling you about where we had the meal, the Passover meal before we headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. And towards the close of the meal, Jesus warned me that, Peter, Satan wants to sift you. Be careful. Be careful because you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. <laughs> deny you? I would never deny you. And in my arrogance and pride, I told Jesus, I would die for you before I deny you. We left that room, went into the garden. I told you about that. I told you how the soldiers came and they arrested Jesus and I offered feeble resistance. And then I, like the others, ran away. After I had run a little bit, I had second thoughts. So I went back into the city and I went to that high pre, former high priest's home where they were conducting the trials. I didn't know what I was going to do. Surely I could, I could help Jesus in some way. And I entered into that courtyard. I was looking around, seeing if I could find Jesus and what I might do to help him in some way. Couldn't see him, so I thought I'd wait a while, and I started to warm my hands by one of the fires in the courtyard. There were others there. And one of those others suggested that I was a follower of Jesus Christ. Me? No, no, I, I don't know the man. I've never been around him. I moved to another fire pit. Someone there suggested the same thing. No, 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 no. I don't know that Jesus. I've never seen him before. I don't have any, I don't know anything about him. When it happened the third time, I adamantly, loudly took an oath that I never, ever knew this Jesus or ever followed him before. I had nothing to do with him. And at that moment, the rooster crowed. I had just denied Jesus. He warned me. And yet I did it. How could I have denied Jesus? My best friend, my master, my leader, the one that I gave up everything for, my business and all for the last two years, and I denied him? I denied this Jesus who had healed my mother-in-law of a terrible, terrible disease. I had denied this Jesus who, who flooded my nets to breaking with fish and told me he would give me life with purpose if I would follow him. He would make me to become fishers of men. I denied Jesus, the one who I saw in all of his glory on the mount one day. I denied this Jesus, this one who reached down into the waves and lifted me up as I was about to drown and put me back into the boat. 
I had denied this Jesus who just weeks before I had said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I had denied him. I hated myself for what I had done. I ran hoping to run away from myself for for denying him. I told you that that Friday, that Saturday were the worst nights as I tried to forget what I had done in denying Jesus, my friend, my Lord. But when that Sunday came and Jesus appeared to us, he also made a special visit to me and me alone that day, giving me the assurance that because I had a repentant heart, he forgave me for denying him. He forgave me. And then when we were in those 40 days walking and talking, we were at the Sea of Galilee one time. And Jesus asked me, do I love him? Do I love him? And I said, oh yes, I love you, I love you. And at that moment, he reassured me that though I had fallen, he had forgiven me, and my life could be fruitful once again. When he said to me, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, Feed my lambs. This Jesus. He will forgive anyone and everyone of any and all sins if they come to him in a spirit of repentance and belief. This Jesus is amazing. This Jesus is God in the flesh. This Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins and mine. This Jesus is willing to forgive you of any and all sins that you have ever committed in the past, the present, the future. If you come to Jesus. And that is the same message I preach to you today that I preached years ago in my very first message. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus because he is the one where you will find forgiveness. Come to Jesus because Jesus saves.
Those two words carry so much weight, don't they? Those two words are the reasons that we celebrate Easter, that we gather today and we say we are excited that Jesus is alive. Those two words are so necessary because of what the Bible says about you and me. The Bible says, all have sinned. Sin simply means that God has a standard and we have not met his standard. God has said, do not do this, and we've chosen to do the opposite. Or God has called us and he has said, I want you to do this, and we've done the opposite. You may look at yourself and you may say, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm not a horrible sinner. It doesn't matter what we think of ourselves or how we look compared to others. It matters what God says in his word. And God says we are all sinners. At some point in your life, you've told a lie. Maybe you've stolen. You've cheated. Your heart's been filled with greed, with jealousy. You've lashed out in undeserved anger towards a family member, towards a friend. The Bible says all have sinned. The Bible also says that the wages, the punishment for our sin is death. We think of that as meaning physical death, but it means so much more. There's a part of us that we can't see, feel, or find. It's our soul. And when we suffer physical death, our soul leaves our body. It's either in heaven or it's in hell. In heaven with God, welcomed into his presence. But because we're sinners, we deserve eternal death, which means eternal separation from God. God is of pure eyes and can't even look upon evil. And the Bible says that all of our righteousness that we think is good is just filthy rags when God sees us. God says, I want you to be with me in heaven, but because of your sin, I need you to be distanced. That is the punishment for being a sinner. We're all sinners. The punishment we deserve is death. But Jesus saves. Because before you were born, the Bible says, Before we were even a glimmer, a thought, God sent his one and only unique son to die on the cross because he loves you. And he says, those of you who are alive who would admit that you are a sinner and would call out and confess and say, God, please forgive me. I repent of what I've done. And because of your death on the cross, Jesus, now I know that I could get to heaven if I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's guaranteed by God and it's possible because Jesus saves. So I ask you, friends, have you ever asked God to forgive you of your sins? Do you know for sure that you are on your way to heaven? If not, we want to help you know for sure. We want to help you have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ where you can say one day, Jesus saves, and he saved me. And so before you leave today, some of our staff to make their way to that door. And we're going to give you an opportunity in just a minute to to stand up, to walk over, to talk with them, to ask them any questions about what you heard today. Ask them about your relationship so you can know for sure you're on your way to heaven. If you're at home and you're watching this in a live stream today or another day, if you have any questions about your eternal destiny, please call. Reach out to us so we can answer those questions. I don't want to embarrass anybody. We don't want somebody to be stared at as they walk over, so why don't we all stand? Would you please join me? We could all stand. Bow your heads and we can listen as the pianist plays through. And thinking to yourself, do you know for sure that you're on your way to heaven? Are you guaranteed in your mind, in your heart, that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? If not, please make your way over to speak with someone. We'd love to help you know for sure that Jesus saves you. God, You have done so very much for us. How can we not be thankful? How can we not celebrate the fact that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again to help restore our relationship with you that was broken because of sin? God, we beg with you that at some point in their life, every person in this room would know for sure that they have that relationship with you, that they have been forgiven. And if they have any questions, please, We'll be waiting even after the service to answer them. 
Help them know for sure that they belong to you. Thank you. And help us this week to celebrate the fact, the truth that we know for sure, Jesus saves. In your name we pray. Amen. My friends, thank you for joining us. Continue to celebrate this week, and we'll see you next time. Have a great day.